the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of life. Its pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stand. Let me greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I'm glad you've joined us for another message from God's Holy Word. Today I'd like to bring the first of a series of messages that I call Our Greatest Science Textbook. It may come as a surprise to some, but the title of this series refers to the Bible. The Holy Scriptures, written by men who were inspired by God's Holy Spirit, is the greatest text of scientific knowledge that has ever been compiled. The Christian who knows God's Word should be aware of this. However, many are not. It's to those who are open to a spiritual understanding of God's Word that I hope to prove my point during the course of this study. Let me open this first message of the series by reading the Apostle Paul's words of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. In view of the relatively recent federal court decision that it's unconstitutional for a state to pass a law that requires teaching the theory of creation alongside the theory of evolution in public schools, I think the subject of this series of messages is most appropriate and timely. We're living in a day when it's fashionable to scoff at God's word and ridicule the teachings of the scriptures when these teachings are directed toward technical things. This, of course, should call to mind the prophecy of the apostle Peter given in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Because of the mood and spirit of our age, I'm going to bring a series of messages on a technical subject. 
I realize that many of you who are listening are not technically minded. Perhaps some of you are. Nevertheless, I'll try to keep the discussion on a level that even the least technically minded of you will be able to follow. Since God's Word is a textbook of science, the Spirit of God will give to those who are His own understanding of that which we're about to cover. In speaking to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, who we are told was both a ruler of the Jews and the teacher in Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ said, If I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The Lord could ask this same question to each one of us. If I have told you of the technical things of this earth and you refuse to believe, how shall you believe when I tell you of heavenly things? The serious Christian seeking for the truth of God in our day is frequently confronted with the problem of the so-called scientific errors in the scripture. When such errors are pointed out, attention is most often directed to the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. These chapters contain the accounts of the creation, the great flood in the days of Noah, and the reestablishment of civilization in the post-flood world. If he's not careful, the seeking Christian may be tempted to resort to the solution of the modernist and of the last-day scoffers. That solution goes something as follows. After all, the Bible is not a textbook of science, but rather of religion. It's meant to tell us the fact of creation, not the method of creation. It tells us who is creator, not when or how he created. It points us to a confrontation with the creator, not an understanding of earth's history. With this apologetic device, the informed student of the word of God must wholeheartedly disagree. It is obvious, of course, that the Bible is not a scientific textbook in the sense of giving detailed technical descriptions and mathematical formulations of natural phenomena. But this is not an adequate reason for questioning the objective accuracy of those very numerous portions of Scripture which do deal with natural phenomena and historical events. To resort to the modernist apologetic device just stated is both logically unsatisfactory for one who thinks on a spiritual plane and evangelistically unfruitful for one who's seeking to win another to Christ. How can an inquirer be led to saving faith in the divine word if the context in which that word is found is filled with error? How can an inquirer trust the Bible to speak truly when it tells of salvation and heaven and eternity, doctrines which he is completely unable to verify by empirical methods, when he finds that data which are subject to test are faulty and erroneous? Surely, if God is really omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing, he is as well able to speak with full truth and accuracy when he speaks of earthly things as when he speaks of heavenly things. Let's delve into this subject. It's of basic importance for anyone dealing with questions of this sort to recognize the essential nature of faith and presuppositions in his reasonings. Science, the very meaning of this word is knowledge, necessarily can deal only with those things that exist at present. The so-called scientific method, by definition, involves what is often called experimental reproducibility, the study of present natural processes. When men attempt to interpret the events of the prehistoric past or of the prophetic future, they must necessarily, again by definition, leave the domain of 
true science, whose measurements can be made only in the present, and enter the realm of not science but faith. If one wishes, this faith may be placed in what is often called the doctrine of uniformity. This doctrine is almost universally accepted by the world of scoffers in our modern day. The doctrine of uniformity assumes that all present-day processes can be extrapolated indefinitely into the past or future. Acceptance of this doctrine allows one to say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation, just as the Apostle Peter plainly points out in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, will be an accepted false doctrine of the last days. It's the false doctrine that scoffers will use as the reason they deny the truth of the second coming of Christ. If one, because of such a basic presupposition, wishes to believe in uniformity in this way, it is logically possible for him to do so. And once he has made his basic presupposition, he can explain, at least superficially, most of the pertinent observed data within his basic framework. Of course, he must not look at the details too closely. The uniformitarianist, to his own satisfaction at least, can determine the ages of rocks and suns by projecting present rates of change into the limitless past, that is, the past that his theory creates. He can develop theories about the evolution of species and life and galaxies and chemical elements and everything else in the universe if he wishes to. It's impossible for anyone to prove him wrong. He cannot be proved wrong for the simple reason that these events are not reproducible and therefore are not subject to scientific checking. The most that be can be done is to argue that his uniformitarianistic ideas are either probable or improbable. Even this must be done on the premise of his own uniformitarian set of presuppositions. Of course, the results of such an argument depend upon logical consistency of the framework, the superstructure he has erected upon his own presupposed foundation. But note this carefully. Everything is entirely within the context of pure assumption, and that assumption is the uniformitarianist's faith in his theory of uniformity. One can, with equal logic, start with some other assumption. Then he can develop his explanations of all observed data within that new framework. For example, one could assume, if he wishes, that all things in the universe were created by a divine creator just five minutes ago. This one could say that our apparent memories of earlier events were also created five minutes ago. And again, no one could prove this dreamer wrong. He has logically explained all the data that exist provided we grant him his initial premise. Going further than that, another could assume, if he wishes, that all existence is a figment of our own imaginations. All existence is just a disease of the mortal mind. And again, no one could prove this one wrong either. The important point here is that one may pretty well believe what he wants to believe. Anyone can erect a logical system within which he can explain all the physical data upon any one of any number of mutually exclusive and yet totally contradictory premises. This is exactly what the world's dreamers, the scoffers at God's word, have done. It's from a logical premise, totally contradictory to the word of God, that the secular world has created its system of uniformity and evolution. 
The theory appears to many to explain all of the observed data. Natural man, always looking for something that permits him to deny the truth of God's word, leaps to accept this false theory as the only possible explanation for the things which are. The Bible presents another theory which also can be explained or which can also explain all of the observed data. That theory explains the data much better than man's false assumption. But modern scoffers simply ignore God's word to pursue their own preposterous theories of uniformity and evolution. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I see that my time for today is almost gone. We'll continue our study of our greatest science textbook on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Thank you for joining us for today's radio Bible study. I'm speaking today on the subject, Our Greatest Science Textbook. My purpose is to show that God's written word, our Holy Bible, is the greatest source of technical knowledge that we have, even in this 20th century nuclear age. There are many, even Christians, in our day who are convinced that the scriptures are hopelessly out of date when these holy writings touch on technical subjects. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our Bible is the greatest textbook of science. In the many places where it does deal with technical things, it is absolutely correct in everything it says. There are many parts of the Bible that can only be understood in the light of the discoveries of modern science. However, this has not kept the scoffers of the last days from ridiculing God's word when it speaks of origins and of the past geologic history of our earth. It's just as the Apostle Peter has said, willingly are they ignorant. Let me open today's message by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. On the last broadcast, we were considering the parts that basic assumptions and faith play in all reasoning about the subject of beginnings. Let me emphasize any events that happened in the prehistoric past are beyond the scientific method because that method by definition can deal only with measurements and observations that can be made in the present. Therefore, any system developed for understanding the earth's past history depends entirely upon the faith and the assumptions of the one who generates the system. We who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior know that we can put our trust in the fact that the Bible is truly the Word of God just as it claims to be. When one starts with the presupposition that God has written the Bible as his own perfect revelation of the origin, purpose, and destiny of the world, then it's perfectly possible to correlate all the physical data of science and history within the biblical framework. This is what the informed child of God does. 
And in so doing, he finds his system of understanding to be the best one possible for correlating all of the discoveries of science and archaeology. The thinkers of the world also make presuppositions and, by faith, accept these presuppositions. Around them, they erect their own superstructure of a logical system intended to explain all the data of science and history. By making their model broad enough, they can, to their own satisfaction, account for most of the observed data. Therefore, the world today is confronted with two models, two systems of understanding. One is based on the presupposition that the Word of God is true and that it gives an accurate picture of both beginnings and subsequent world history. The other model is based on the presupposition that these processes operating in the world at the present can be projected back into the infinite past and therefore these processes must be responsible not only for beginnings but also for all subsequent history. This world model is the theory of evolution, which is based upon an acceptance of the doctrine of uniformity. The decision as to which model is the correct one, then, is not based upon scientific reasoning. Rather, it's based upon which set of presuppositions that the individual concerned chooses to believe. This is a faith decision, not a scientific one. The decision as to which set of presuppositions leads to the most logical and self-consistent model for interpretation of data must necessarily be based only on statistical arguments. And, as anyone who's ever been involved in one knows, statistical arguments are notoriously non-objective in nature. These are the type arguments that no one ever wins. Thus, in the last analysis, where one chooses to place his faith is a spiritual and moral decision rather than a scientific decision. One can interpret all observed data in terms of biblical creationism and catastrophism, or he can interpret all observed data in terms of evolutionary uniformitarianism. The most pertinent data can be fitted, at least in broad outline, within the framework of either model. However, as one goes into detailed study of the two opposing systems, it soon becomes obvious that the biblical framework is the only concept that fits in all details. The purpose of this study is to show that the Bible does provide a perfectly sound basis for understanding not only spiritual truth, but also physical processes. The Bible may very effectively serve as a textbook of scientific principles within which we can satisfactorily explain all the data of both science and history. Whether or not we choose to accept this framework is basically determined by whether or not we want to do it. Those who elect the evolutionary framework do so not because of the facts of science require that decision, but because this is the philosophic thought structure that they desire. It's just as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Those who by faith accept the biblical framework do so for a perfectly good reason. Most who do are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they have experienced the miracle of the new birth. These know without a doubt that the evidence for the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures far outweighs any so-called evidence against it. Even a non-Christian knows that it is obviously impossible to prove that God does not exist. Even to the unregenerated natural man, there is, 
at the very least, a good possibility that the God of the Bible does exist. If God does exist, it follows that all living things are his creatures, his creations. The very minds with which we attempt to develop logical thought structures are created by him. Therefore, these minds must operate within the limitations which he has set on them. It's then necessary, if we would understand anything of the true origin, purpose, and destiny of the world and of ourselves, for us to look to God for his own revelation of these things. God can only be known as he wills to be known. The Bible claims in numerous ways to be God's unique revelation. For those who are aware of its contents and who have given it serious thought, there is more than adequate evidence to prove that it is a book that could not have been written by mere man. The exact same 39-book Old Testament that we have today was accepted as God's unique revelation by Jesus Christ. He claimed to be God incarnate, and he proved his claim by his uniquely perfect life, his atoning death, and especially by his glorious bodily resurrection from the dead. The Bible, with this perfect claim to absolute divine authority, does very clearly establish a framework of interpretation within which men are expected to formulate their understanding of all observed technical data. It's most reasonable and most gracious of God to give us this revelation because it is quite impossible for man with his study of the present processes of science to know anything for certain about the prehistoric past or the prophetic future. Only God can know these things because he was the only observer. We are able to know the truth about these matters only through faith in God's statements concerning them. Therefore, the Bible-believing Christian goes to his Bible for his basic orientation in all departments of truth. The Bible is his textbook of science as well as his guide to all spiritual truth. In their very structure, in fact, the books of the Bible provides a fundamental perspective of the entire 20th century Bible science controversy. The word Bible simply means book. It's of great significance that the very first mention of book in the Old Testament speaks of the book of the origins of Adam. This reference is found in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. The first mention of book in the New Testament speaks of the book of the origins of Jesus Christ. And this reference is found in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The true book, therefore, by implication, is concerned with the first Adam and the last Adam, and the relationship between the two. While we're on the subject, it's also meaningful that the final mention of book in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 19. Here, the inspired author speaks of both the book of this prophecy and the book of life. This verse includes a grave warning against tampering with the words of the book. Therefore, there is ample evidence that the Bible is the textbook of all truth. It is scripturally accurate, and it's scientifically accurate. Man must go to the Bible for his basic presuppositions when it comes to the establishing of a model for understanding scientific truth. This, in itself, makes the Bible our most basic textbook of science. I see that my time for today is almost gone. We'll continue our study of our greatest science textbook on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today.
Let me once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Thank you for joining us for another radio message from God's Holy Word. Today I'm continuing to speak on the subject, Our Greatest Science Textbook. We're considering the source of the controversy between the teachings of 20th century pseudoscience and the teachings of the Bible concerning the origin and the subsequent history of our universe. The root of the problem is not in the two different theories upon which the two systems are erected, but rather in the basic presuppositions which are accepted by pure faith upon which the framework of the two mutually exclusive models are built. The presuppositions upon which the models are built are neither scientific in nature because they're beyond the reach of the scientific method. These presuppositions are not subject to scientific measurements and experiment. Therefore, they are in the realm of faith and religion, not science. This applies to the presuppositions behind the theory of evolution as well as those behind the theory of creationism. Let me open today's message by reading the Apostle Paul's warning to the young preacher Timothy concerning the science falsely so-called of these last days. This warning is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. The word science is essentially synonymous with knowledge, and the word is used this way in Scripture. The first mention of knowledge in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. Here the word is used in connection with the tree of knowledge. One might paraphrase Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9 by saying that God warned man against partaking of the tree of the science of good and evil. When God gave the instruction of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, it was made evident that there were to be prescribed limits within which man was to exercise dominion over the world. These limits were imposed for man's own good. He was not intended to venture outside these bounds and know in experimental fashion the science of good and evil. In contrast with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, the first use of the word knowledge in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 77. In that reference, the evangelist speaks of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Later on, the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 tells us, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's instructive also to compare the words knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge has to do primarily with awareness of facts. On the other hand, wisdom has to do with interpretation and correlation and explanation of facts. These two words are, in general, parallel to what we mean by our English technical words science and philosophy. This parallel also corresponds with their usages in Scripture. In the New Testament, knowledge is normally the translation of the Greek gnosis or epignosis. In our passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, gnosis is actually translated by our English word science. Here, it's modified by the Greek word that means falsely named, and that is where we get the expression science falsely so-called. 
Wisdom in the New Testament is translated from the Greek Sophia, which, when compounded with the Greek word for love of and transliterated into the English, becomes philosophy, which is literally love of wisdom. It's significant that the only time the actual word philosophy is found in our English Bible is in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. In that verse, the Apostle Paul warns, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. By the way, this is the very warning that the secular thinkers of today have not heeded. True knowledge and true wisdom, which is to say true science and true philosophy, must come from God alone. These things must, therefore, conform to his framework of revealed truth. The inspired author said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He also said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These Old Testament quotations come from Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 and Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The pen of the Apostle Paul, in a tremendous doxology, figuratively shouted, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things." To whom be glory forever. Amen. That's in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. The Apostle Paul also emphasized that in Jesus Christ, the living word of God, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. Notice, this refers not only to religious knowledge, but to all knowledge. All the treasures of science and true philosophy are hidden in Jesus Christ, who is the creator and sustainer of the physical universe. It's not only legitimate then, but absolutely necessary for the Christian to depend implicitly on the scientific and philosophic framework revealed in Holy Scripture if he is to attain a true understanding of any of the factual data with which science deals and the implication of these data. It's not surprising at all, then, when we find that the Bible does speak rather explicitly about basic principles of every area of science. It's necessary to consider science under two very broad categories. First, the physical sciences, and second, the life sciences. The classification of life sciences also includes the so-called social sciences. The physical sciences include such disciplines as chemistry, physics, geology, meteorology, hydrology, and so forth. The life sciences include biology, psychology, anthropology, sociology, and others. Let's touch briefly on just the physical sciences. As far as the physical sciences are concerned, perhaps the most fundamental fact concerning them, long ago revealed in scripture, but only recently acknowledged by modern science, is that the physical world is basically non-physical in its ultimate elementary form. Modern science today knows that the mechanics of the universe can only be comprehended, and then only vaguely, in terms of non-mechanical mathematical concepts. But certain scriptures, 
penned approximately 1,900 years ago make it quite clear that the physical universe was created out of nothing and is basically spiritual in its ultimate essence. We can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 and read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Perhaps some Greek scholars will object that the word translated worlds in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 really means ages. It actually can mean both. The literal translation of the word is time worlds. However, in view of the modern recognition of the universe as a space-time-matter continuum, it would clearly be correct to speak of either space or matter or time or all of them as having been created by the word of God. And, as the verse says, the basic stuff of this continuum is most definitely not apparent to the physical senses. The same truth is revealed in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We read, By whom, God's Son, also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding and sustaining all things by the word of his power. Thus, by power, by the word, all things were made, and all things are upheld, sustained. Scripture specifically tells us that Jesus Christ, through the continual outflow of his limitless divine energy, is thus, today, sustaining all of the material stuff of the universe which he had once created. Here is clearly spelled out the modern scientific truth of the equivalence of matter and energy. Here is also revealed the ultimate source of the mysterious nuclear binding forces, the binding energy of the atom. We can only refer to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 for the same teaching. For by him, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And that word translated consist means holds together. From this, the child of God should be able to see that all physical science must come from God. God is the creator, and God is the sustainer. Therefore, he must be the author of the laws of creation, when such laws were actually in effect, and also the author of the laws of maintenance or preservation or conservation, which are in effect today. If he is the author of all physical laws, then he and his word must be the basic source of all knowledge of physical science. The Bible is our greatest textbook of science. My time for today is almost gone. We'll continue our study of our greatest science textbook on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined us by radio for another message from God's Holy Word. Today I'm continuing to speak on the subject, Our Greatest Science Textbook. In this series of messages, we're comparing the two models for understanding the origin and subsequent history of the universe that are currently competing for the faith and trust of mankind. One of these models, that of creationism and catastrophism, 
is based on the belief that the Bible is truly the Word of God and that it speaks authoritatively and without error on all subjects. Therefore, it is entirely correct when it records God's revelation concerning both origins and subsequent human history. The other model, that of evolutionary uniformitarianism, the world system, assumes that, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. This model of beginnings discards the word of God and depends upon human reasoning and logic, wisdom and philosophy, as that in which man's faith and trust is to be placed. These two models are mutually exclusive. That is, if one is true, then the other cannot possibly be true. On previous broadcasts, we have seen that both systems, the system of the world as well as the system of the Bible, are accepted by pure faith. The scientific method cannot deal with origins, and there is no compelling scientific reason to believe or disbelieve either system. An individual can pretty well believe anything he wants to believe. Therefore, that in which one chooses to place his or her faith is really a religious decision, not a scientific one. Let me open today's message by reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Those who accept the theory of evolutionary uniformitarianism often loudly proclaim that their model is compatible with the basic laws of nature that are seen operating throughout the universe. And on the other hand, they say that the competing model of creationism has no foundation in these laws. Is this a correct assessment of the facts? What is the nature of the basic sustaining laws of our universe? As far as the laws or processes of the physical universe are concerned, they are all based upon just two broad and powerful principles. These two principles are often referred to as the two laws of energy exchange. They are also called the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Let me emphasize the point that if there really is such a thing as a law of science, these two principles meet that definition. There is no other scientific law supported more fully and certainly by more experimental evidence than are these two laws. All physical processes, and that includes all biological processes, involve the interplay of just two basic entities called energy and entropy. It is a scientific fact that any event or process occurring in space and time is a manifestation of some form of exchange of energy. The particular event or process is basically just this, a transformation of one or more forms of energy, mechanical, electrical, chemical, light, heat, sound, nuclear, and so forth, into one or more other forms. In these processes, the total quantity of energy remains unchanged. No energy is either created or destroyed, although its form may and does change. This is the first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy. The law of conservation of energy has been validated on both the cosmic and the subnuclear scale, and it truly is a universal law. 
Now, since energy really includes everything in the physical universe, all matter or material is really just energy in highly concentrated form, it is as certain as anything can possibly be, scientifically, that no creation of anything is now taking place anywhere in the universe. However, in the energy exchange process, some of the energy is always transformed into non-reusable heat energy, and thus it becomes unavailable for future energy exchanges. The concept of entropy has been developed to describe this phenomenon. Entropy is defined as a measure of the unavailability of the energy of the system or process. The second law of thermodynamics describes this by stating that there is always a tendency for any system to become less organized. The disorder or randomness of the system tends to increase. If isolated from external sources of order, another definition of energy, or information, any system will eventually run down and die. The first and second laws of thermodynamics are basic and unchanging in every scientific system or process. As far as science has been able to show, they are universal in scope. There is no known exception. However, these laws were only discovered and validated by science about 100 years ago. However, if men had been willing to develop their scientific systems on the basis of biblical presuppositions, it would have been quite obvious all along that the basic physical processes were those of conservation and decay, exactly as is now formulated in the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Now we know, of course, that the Bible does not state these principles in the mathematical symbols or technical jargon of modern physics. In spite of this, the basic truths of both the first and second laws of thermodynamics are quite clearly brought out. The conservation principle of the first law of thermodynamics is defined and strongly emphasized in the summary statement at the end of the creation account as it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here the sacred author writes, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. This statement is as clear as it could possibly be in teaching that God's creative acts were terminated at the end of the sixth day. Therefore, the statement of the last day scoffers prophesied by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 cannot possibly be true. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Creation processes ended at the close of the sixth day, and they could not possibly continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. All of God's work, actually the Hebrew word could better be translated energy, ceased when God rested on the seventh day. Absolutely nothing is now being created. This fact is exactly what was finally formalized by man's science in the first law of thermodynamics. God created energy during the first six days of the creation period. But on the seventh day, he stopped creating energy. And now, in the finished creation, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Only God can create energy, 
and, as a companion principle, only God can destroy energy. The author of the book of Genesis has given us the first law of thermodynamics as the foremost scientific principle that governs God's finished creation. The statement of Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is as clear as it could possibly be in teaching that God's creative acts were terminated at the end of the six days. Whatever processes he may have used in creating and making all of his work, all of his energy, all of this work ceased when God rested on the seventh day. Nothing is now being created, and this fact is exactly what was finally formalized by science in what is now called the first law of thermodynamics. The most significant implication of this fact for modern godless philosophers is that it is therefore quite impossible to determine anything about creation through a study of present processes, those processes that are available for study by the scientific method. The reason is simply that, this pre uh, that present processes are not creative in character. If modern man wishes to know anything at all about creation, the time of creation, the duration of creation, the methods of creation, or anything else, his only source of true information is that of divine revelation. God was there at the time of creation. Man, not a single one of us, was not there. There is absolutely nothing in present physical processes which can tell us anything about the creation period. Therefore, man is completely limited to what God has seen fit to tell us in his holy word. God has not neglected to tell us about the origin of all things in his written word. The Bible is our one and only textbook on the science of creation. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll conclude our study of our greatest science textbook on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I'm glad you've joined our radio family as we gather together for another message from God's Holy Word. Today I'm bringing the final message in our study series that I've entitled, Our Greatest Science Textbook. In this series of messages, I have attempted to show that the Bible, God's Holy Word, is the most basic textbook of science that we have even in this present nuclear age. It clearly reveals the most basic principles of the natural law as scientists understand them today. The fundamental scientific laws that govern the processes which maintain this finished universe where in the present nothing is being created or destroyed are laws of conservation and degradation, not laws of creation and integration. The laws of science tell us that the universe is finished, nothing is coming into existence, and nothing is going out of existence. However, that which does exist is constantly deteriorating and decaying. That is, the universe is quantitatively stable, but qualitatively deteriorating. Scientists know beyond doubt, by the scientific method, that these principles are true. The Bible, God's textbook of science, reveals them in the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis. Everywhere that the Bible touches upon technical subjects, it's found to be absolutely correct. No true scientist can deny this. 
Yet the world system of evolutionary uniformitarianism does deny these basic principles of science by speculating that creation is still going on and that certain laws of integration and progressive improvement are still operating in the universe today. This idea contradicts both the observations of modern science and the revelation of scripture. On the last broadcast, we were considering the two most basic laws of science. These are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first of these laws says that nothing can be created or destroyed. This is a law of conservation, not a law of creation. The second law says that everything that does exist is constantly decaying. This is a law of degradation, not a law of integration. The Bible speaks of the first law of thermodynamics in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It speaks of the second law in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. God completed his work of creation at the end of the sixth creation day. Laws of creation, which only God knows and controls, ceased to operate throughout the universe, and these laws were replaced by a law of conservation and preservation, the first law of thermodynamics. The universe was in a state of perfect preservation from the end of the sixth creation day until the time of Adam's sin and the resulting fall of humanity. When the Lord God appeared before our first parents, he imposed the curse, the law of degradation and deterioration, the second law of thermodynamics. From that time on, these two basic principles have governed all the processes of God's finished universe. A statement of God's continued preservation and maintenance is contained in Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Since God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was the active agent in creation, we should not be surprised to find that it is also the second person of the Godhead, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the active agent in preservation. He is the subject of these four verses. Let me read Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. In whom, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and for him, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is before all things, and by him all things consist. By him all things hold together. Let me again emphasize that the present technical processes of the universe are those of maintenance or providence. Not only is nothing being created, but also nothing is being destroyed. As Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Also, by the same omnipotent word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who created all things, the heavens and the earth which are now are kept in store, are kept stored up, are kept maintained, are kept preserved. And in the passage we just read, we are told, by him all things, the entire finished creation, hold together. Earlier in this series, we've already noted another very significant characteristic of all present processes. It is true that nothing that now exists is being destroyed, but it is also strangely true that everything tends to become less useful with passing time. 
This is the second law of thermodynamics at work, the law of entropy increase. This scientific law states that the natural tendency is toward increasing disorder and randomization. Energy tends to become less available for useful work. A given process can only be maintained by a continual influx of fresh energy from outside the system itself. This is the law that forbids perpetual motion. It's also the law behind a principle that we all know by observation. We know that everything tends to grow old, to wear out, to run down. There is a universal tendency toward decay and death. I'm sure that everyone listening to me today, in some way or another, senses that this state of affairs, universal and unrelenting as it is, is somehow undesirable and abnormal in a universe that was created by a holy and omnipotent creator. But it is the principle of the second law of thermodynamics, and this universe will be subject to it until God removes the curse. The state of affairs brought about by the second law of thermodynamics is all explained and long anticipated in Scripture, which attributes it to the entrance of sin into this world. At the end of the sixth day of the creation and making of all things, the Bible says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. There was no disorder, no lack of harmony, no decay, and above all, no death in the world as it was originally made by God. For the Bible-believing scientist, this can only mean that any evidence he finds in the present order of things or in the records of the past that indicates disorder and struggle, suffering, decay, and death must necessarily be understood as entering the world after, not before or during the six days of creation. Specifically, God's revelation tells us that this happened as a result of the sin of the first man, Adam, who had been designated by God as master of the earth and everything in it. When he sinned, God pronounced a curse on both Adam and his dominion. Cursed is the earth for thy sake, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. From that day on, as the scripture says, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That's in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. The entire organized system, the cosmos, the world, both the heavens and the earth, and all that in them is, are waxing old as a garment, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 11. As scripture plainly reveals, God's curse upon Adam's dimension, the finished creation, is that which scientists now observe and measure and have designated as the scientific principle known as the second law of thermodynamics. Again, let me state, the Bible is our greatest science textbook. This great book of God's revelation to man does not supply the detailed data and formulations that man's science has developed in order to better understand the principles of God's laws of preservation and decay. God has not revealed those details because the discovery of them is man's responsibility. This is set forth in the great command to subdue the earth given when man was first created and recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. However, God has given the basic principles for interpreting and correlating and utilizing these data. The Bible contains only the basic principles. Therefore, even though it is not filled with scientific details, it most definitely is our greatest science textbook. 
to the extent that man has worked within the interpretive framework provided by the great science textbook of God's revelation, his science has been productive and beneficial to mankind. However, when man has discarded God's science textbook, ignored its principles, and then attempted to establish his own model of principles of origins, then his efforts have proven not only sterile, but also positively harmful. That is what has happened with man's secular theory of evolutionary uniformitarianism. Man has discarded the principles revealed by God in his word and has replaced these principles with assumptions from man's own vain reasonings. The principles that are the product of human minds are contradictory to those revealed by God and building a model for understanding both origins and subsequent history on them has resulted in a system of philosophy that is contradictory to every point of God's revelation, both concerning physical things and spiritual things. This is where man has gone astray. He did not want to retain God in his knowledge, and professing himself to be wise, he became a fool. That is the basis of the conflict of so-called science in the Bible today. God gave man a true model upon which he might build his understanding of scientific things. But man threw away the model and developed his own. Now man's model is being loudly proclaimed as the only scientifically based theory of origins and subsequent world history. Our schools accept the world's model and they ridicule God's model. Nevertheless, creationism, based on the biblical revelation, is the only model that provides a place to fit all of the observed data. In the final analysis, all truth is one. God did not create one universe of physical reality and another one of spiritual reality. The same God created all things. His word was given by his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. The Bible is, for the Christian, the greatest textbook of science and of all knowledge. My time for today is almost gone. I've been greatly blessed in bringing you this series of messages on our greatest science textbook. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. The Bible stands every test we give it for its Sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast Incorporated, Post Office Box 864930, Plano, Texas 75086.